0: the Lloyd's List shipping
1: podcast. Euronav's outspoken CEO, Penny Rogers, has been increasingly vocal about the environmental dangers of scrubbers, His position that is unlikely to have won in many friends and companies that have collectively spent billions of dollars installing kit to meet the 2020 sulfur cap. But, always one for an ear with a soundbite, he argues that the solution to pollution is not dilution. His latest comments to that great arbiter of truth and integrity, the Daily Mail, He suggests that the industry risks a public backlash to match the Volkswagen emissions scandal when they work out that ship owners are simply flushing their sulfur instead of pumping it into the atmosphere. Paddy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Richard. So, scrubbers. We've known 2020 has been coming for some time. Scrubbers have uh, been on the agenda for at least the last two to three years, to my knowledge. Mm. Obviously, the uh, heat is on in terms of the deadline. Why now and why are you talking quite so vociferously about the fact that scrubbers are probably not the solution we should have been opting for?
0: Yeah, no. Uh, So first of all, thank you, Richard, for going straight to the point. Um, But I would say that uh, the way that the context in which we uh, present it uh, when we're discussing it, I mean, I gave a uh, presentation to Intertanko last week. And uh, we've always taken the view that it's really become very monocular that everybody talks about scrubbers. They don't talk about IMO 2020. And I think that um, I don't want to sound evasive, but I want to come back to putting things in the right order uh, to our mind in terms of the importance of that legislation. So um, I was always very, I and mean, I think myself and some of the other members of the senior management team at URNA were very hesitant about the kind of people who were promoting scrubbers. And I'd like to refer to them as promoters because um, they have an economic driver in it, which is often very different from a ship owner's. So when you hear brokers of finance, brokers of equities, and brokers of any kind of shipyard expenditure trumpeting uh, an investment that is going to cost you a lot up front, and and somehow you're going to get it back um, through the net back on the freight because of cheaper oil, the price of which they cannot be clear about, um, then of course you're you're on you're on alert. You know there's something going on here. Let's be absolutely clear. The the, uh, marine equipment manufacturers, the brokers involved, the finance houses, all take their fees up front. Mm. And for them, the fact that you don't get paid back, there's no no clear connection between your netback to pay off your scrubber investment. um, Because the way it comes to you is through cheaper expenses, uh, which uh, are taken out of what you hope will be a generally high freight price. And the idea of the generally high freight price has one determinative factor, which is how are we setting freight? Are we setting it off a cheap, uh, dirty sulfur fuel or are we setting it off a compliant fuel? Clearly, if we're setting it off a dirty sulfurous fuel, then our net back will be the same as it was before IMO 2020. Uh, and it will really depend on... And all you will have done is wasted your capital investment. And the only benefit to you from that is that there may be somebody having a worse net back because their fuel was more expensive. Yeah. So there's no cash benefit in that circumstance. You're simply beggaring thy neighbour. And uh, as we know in shipping, that's of no value to you. Why is it of no value to you? Because companies don't go bankrupt anymore to enable you to buy assets cheaply. They're simply going to Chapter 11. Um, your competitors never leave the field. There is no advantage in seeing them beggared or, or broken. Um, so I don't really see where the value is at all if fuel prices off uh, a dirty, sulfurous, uh, cheap uh, HFO. Um, of course, the reason that this scrubber break for the border was done, because very few people had identified scrubbers as a viable alternative for big ships, And indeed, some of the people who recognised this risk spoke firmly to it very early on. So Maersk in particular, but also the senior members of Intertanker simply said, look, uh, the sickness for shipping is too much CapEx and not enough OPEX, Mm. which basically means your sunk costs can easily be ignored in the marketplace equation, which is always determined by supply and demand, not by the cost of your capital investment. So their advocacy was no scrubbers moved to compliant fuel because operating expenses are nearly always recoverable in the marketplace and capex seldom is. So that was the baseline. And then, of course, a few of them opportunistically broke for the border, thinking they'll only be 5% take-up because there are only three scrubber manufacturers. And, of course, uh, what we're looking at now is that there won't just be three scrubber manufacturers. There are now over 40. And significant numbers of ships are being fitted with scrubbers. That means that we're going to switch more and more towards it potentially being freight rates set by the scrubber uh, operator rather than by the compliant fuel. So the risk has moved. Um, and of course, HFO will not be cheap if there are enough scrubbers to absorb the oversupply of the fuel against the demand for the fuel. So almost straight away, there's, there is a, an economic conundrum and it's been incorrectly manifested as a lack of preparedness for the owner. Uh, Actually, it's because uh, experienced owners knew that this was potentially a a very unpleasant experience if you've paid in too much capex to make yourself economically more competitive. And because of the supply balance in the market, you hand that competitive advantage to the charterer or to the the person who wants the cargo move. So this was really a little bit of the background for the way that we felt. Um, Scrubbers have been around for a very long time. I think the IMO envisaged them for the first time in the, the end of the last uh, um, millennium. So in the 90s, it formed part of the programme. Um, it was very, very heavily sold going into 2015 when the zones were expanded. And it was done on the basis that it would be a price spread between MGO, which you would burn in the zone, or a heavy sulphur. And you would obviously have to reduce your emissions uh, by using either a closed-loop scrubber or an open-loop scrubber, but with the right balance on how you uh, neutralize the sulfur content. That's a really important point just because it didn't play out that way, simply because a lot of people had envisaged a certain spread, but you'll remember that in November 2014, quantitative easing ended on the US dollar and the oil price fell as as the US dollar strengthened to the point where what had been in excess of $100 a barrel became $35 a barrel within six weeks. So this crushed the economics of the capex investment and the return because the margin squeezed in and the differential between the two grades of fuel didn't justify the investment in a scrubber. Most big ship operators didn't go for the scrubber anyway simply because they weren't in ecozones for enough of their sailing time to make it really viable. That was the story of history what's interesting about it is that when the commentators spoke about scrubbers two years ago once we knew we were on a 2020 deadline the metric that they used was the metric that had failed in 2015 which was the price spread between mgo and um, high sulfur fuel oil something happened which was clearly a bit odd which was that we had been proposed scrubbers and i won't tell you from which manufacturer um, that had a post wash a cleaning system, a hydrocyclone and a sludge tank which took out heavy metals and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and black carbon matter. Mm-hmm. When we were shown a recent uh, proposal for scrubber fitting the cleaning treatment had been removed. A lot of people in the IMO, flag states that we've spoken to, including the British, the British Transport Minister, all believe that that system still exists. But what happened was that the IMO gave uh, quantity numbers in terms of uh, concentration. And if you could meet those, not by cleaning um, the wastewater, but by using more water to scrub, you could meet the dilution target. And so people went for a cheaper option, which was to drop the cleaning from the open loop scrubber. That has not been focused on. And the bulk of uh, open-loop scrubbers that are being ordered now don't have a system of waste retrieval at all and will pump overboard not only, uh, and I'll come to this in a moment in another expression, not only sulphur, but also um, uh, all of the other pollutants, um, heavy metals, PAHs, carbon and ash. The the reason the public may get annoyed about this is that these are at times likely to leave... uh, Sheens and uh, black deposits on the surface of the water, so they will be observable. And until the public's been tested on that, we don't know whether the story of the scrubber might be terminated within six months of operation. This, of course, would kill um, the investment return. I just—I'll come back to the sulfate thing just now because of the uh, what seems to me extraordinarily funny is the idea that somehow sulfuric acid is not a waste product of this process. Sulfuric acid is the waste product of this process. People say it's not being washed over or overboard or pumped overboard. No, that's because we've done something very strange. We don't take the pollutant to the sea. We bring the sea on board to the pollutant, and then we say we're not polluting. This is nonsense. This is a bit like um, I, I, I was trying to think of a good example, but um, the, the the idea that you um, that there is a difference between pumping. Um, sulfuric acid overboard which is neutralized within 50 meters of the ship or bringing water on board that seawater on board mixing it up on the ship and then pumping it over and saying it's not the same process it's exactly the same process it's just that you use a daft concept of containment because you do the mixing on the ship so that was my point about um you know so dilution is not the solution you had a question for me, then. I could say it popped up. <laughs> well, no, thank you. I mean, I, uh, we'll just wind
1: you up and let you go on this I'm afraid this
0: is something that people have seen more of an illness than as a... An a, as a, well, than as a...
1: well, no, I think, it's, I think it's very interesting that, you know, you're using the opportunity to speak out quite so vocally about it, and not necessarily just to the industry. I mean, and this was my point. Your objections in terms of business grounds, your, your view on it versus uh, the view of the rest of the market... That's a business call, and yes, that's the way these things go. Your view in terms of how the public will view this—that's now—that's a different argument uh, entirely. And if you're going out and talking to the likes of the Daily Mail about this and equating it to the VW scandal, there is an agenda there. You know, this is a public agenda. This is you know talking quite you know openly about a fairly technical industry topic, and.
0: I'm just wondering who yeah. you think you're talking to there. Yeah. Are you testing this yeah. in the Court
1: of public opinion before you? Yes,
0: yes, yes. Because the, you know this was the unspreadsheetable risk, yeah, which none yeah. of the promoters care about because mm. they get paid when you sign. And your point about the promoters
1: is exactly right. You know there is a very heavy scrubber lobby now. Yes, um, you know the day after MEPC, we were phoned by a a, a, a lobby group, effectively. Yes. Uh, asking if uh, we needed to be educated in any way over the, um, you know, the intricacies of scrubbers. It's...
0: Yeah, no, and I certainly, look, I don't, um, there are a number of, when you read on the subject, you come across a number of interesting features. And first of all, I always think that the, the clean scrubber, the, the clean seas alliance or sort whatever, of, uh, is the worst kind of uh, greenwashing, in the sense that they uh, claim to have an environmental view, which none of them ever had until there was an economic view. And when you see a list of people that includes uh, the people that make the kit and um, uh, commodity traders, uh, don't tell me uh, that I they have already invested. or uh, invested. Don't don't tell me that they are motivated at all by the environment. And indeed, if you speak to anybody in the technical department of any company that has ships and say to them, "Would you voluntarily put a scrubber on board a ship?" The answer is no. There's only one argument for putting a scrubber on board a ship. And that is essentially to access cheaper fuel and better economics. And I've got no objection to that. My objection to it is people saying that they have something environmental at heart. And the problem that I have with that as well is that A lot of these people uh, have been supportive on understanding the 2050 IMO goals of needing to reduce uh, carbon, uh, CO2 emissions, and scrubbers will drive up CO2 emissions, not just because you have to have a greater power load on the ship, therefore you burn more fuel, but also because of the price differential, they're more likely to see time as important rather than cost, so that they could burn more fuel and go faster and have better economics. Now, the IMO must look at that because this is exactly the opposite of what they need to be doing in order to achieve the targets to satisfy the rest of the international bodies on this industry's attempts to take global warming seriously. Hmm. Yeah, IMO
1: would counter that that the 2050 targets and all of the various uh, environmental programs from EEDI to SEFP and the rest of it are not being done in isolation to this, but as a concurrent program of events. And there is always going to be that sort of Newtonian equal and opposite reaction to things that you adjust. You're never going to have a perfect system where if you tackle sulfur, it's not going to have an impact on CO two. But it is being done in the knowledge that these things are being done as uh, you know an environmental program as a wholesale product rather than individual
0: parts. Yeah, but it's not because it's. I mean, it's 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 not to my mind simply because um, uh, you know you get very very uh, Machiavellian argument. Uh, so the IMO is there to rule on the shipping industry. Every every other industry is ruled in different bodies or in different ways. But the IMO, we're, we're the only industry, actually, that has an international body ruling because of the ease of shifting between nations and not being adequately monitored by nations. And, IKEA? Hmm? Ikea with aviation? Surely similar. Well, they don't set rules uh, globally. The rules are done nationally. Right. Okay. So they implement directly. I mean, the, the, because they're all fixed lines and everybody has a home port. Um, so it, it's a different style to... Uh, to this. But, but what is interesting to my mind is that you set goals and you said that everything that happens should be re- aiming to reduce carbon emission. Um, when you bring this up, somebody will immediately say, yes, but if we all use compliant fuel... Uh, we'd have to crack heavy grades of fuel, and as a result of that, have more carbon emissions in the refinery. Uh, this is th- this is completely wonky. I mean, uh, the IMO is there to look at shipping, and particularly to deal with international waters, as you said earlier on. National waters are dealt with by uh, a national authority. So, and shifting around to say oh, we, we could do it differently at the refinery. One of the things that's very strange about it to me is that everybody thinks the way that you will deal with sulphur is by a further heavy cracking of the, the residue. I don't think that's the case. And certainly the refiners I've spoken to don't think it's the case. Their view is that there's already uh, sufficient uh, cracking capacity, but the bulk of most refineries will simply try not to make it. Uh, and they will do that by choosing their feedstock more carefully. And quite frankly, if that drives up the price of oil, and if that dri- means that some resources are left in the ground because they're too... Um, uh, uh, polluting to be manufactured this is actually what we're meant to be doing we're meant to be putting a penalty price on the most polluting forms of fuel so it's a bit of a cockamamie argument to say uh, oh well we have to do this because if you cracked it there it would look like that without any other supporting information and you used a word earlier on which I do take a lot of um, uh, objection to which is the word that has been misused all the time which is science um, typically, the IMO uh, is always in a hurry and always behind schedule and recently on the 2050 discussions at MEPC, uh, they rejected a peer review science base for decarbonisation. And this is exactly what they did wrong with scrubbers. So uh, the, the Danish Environmental Protection Agency commissioned a report from a group of environmental engineers and, 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 uh, which was presented to the IMO. Um, there were only two test runs in their paper, two voyages of one ship on emissions. That's not science. And, the, and uh, the Danish Environmental Protection Agency had made an investment in order to design a scrubber system that would work for big ships on the high seas. So they were already had a vested interest in which they had spent money. The report writers um, came up with a number of points, but one of the ones that they made up was that we have to disclose there's a vested interest. Uh, that there is an assumption that there is no background pollution which could cause a tipping point around um, uh, the use of an open-loop scrubber. And there is no accumulation of the pollution because it's buffered into the sea uh, in, in, in the same way that all sulphur is. And they said that these are just being taken as assumptions. We don't test them. So there's no data other than... And then there was a big desktop study on volumes of seawater, current levels of uh, sulphur... And, uh, and they assumed a perfect model of mixing. Uh, so this can be f- this is far, far from a scientific report. Others have been uh, sanctioned typically or requested or commissioned by oil majors, refiners uh, and systems manufacturers, or by some flag states where the national champion is a marine equipment supplier. There is no really good impartial science. There are a couple of um, open-source and um, peer-reviewed studies. Those all tend to point to the fact that this is polluting and that, um, and that what the long-term impacts might be may not be particularly clear because no one's done any scientific work. There have been no proper um, uh, experimentation. So we're going to run a live experiment in 2020 and then we'll see what the consequences are. The most likely consequences will be in congested waterways and people don't think those are very widespread, but that would be horribly mistaken. If you looked at a VLCC route map, then you would see that, um, obviously, the English Channel and up to the Arrow Range. The lines that are taken into uh, the Gulf of Mexico between the Caribbean islands and uh, Galveston, Houston, etc., uh, are very, very concentrated and very limited. The routes out to China through the Malacca Straits um, is a very narrow and congested waterway, the buffering of, uh, of uh, sulphur with carbonate will deplete the access of shellfish and, and, and uh, crustaceans and of um, corals to the, uh, the calcium elements, the carbonates that they need in order to thrive and build shells. So these are, these are areas which are potentially high risk. Look, I'm not a scientist either. And I'm not trying to pretend. I think I've read probably more widely than anybody else because I've probably read about twenty of these reports from very different sources, mm-hmm. as have technical people around me as well. So it's not just my. It's not just an idea of one. We've debated it quite heavily. Why is it important to Uranav? Because I don't want to run what for Uranav would be a three to four hundred million dollar investment, and then be told that it's a sunken, wasted cost six months after the the yeah. uh, the and six months after the IMO 2020 starts. You may say that's never gonna happen. You're not suddenly gonna get a turnaround. Well, I think we've seen turnarounds in some of the European states. We've seen Hong Kong. We could have China. Uh, we could have Malaysia uh, and Indonesia. Uh, this is, doesn't take much work. If, if they start to get reported to them that it's affecting farmers and literal coast uh, people deal with fish farms, etc., the reaction can be very, very fast. Last but by no, no means least is uh, uh, corporate social responsibility of oil majors. Let's recall um, single to double hull. You know, the IMO date for uh, for um, obsolete the obsolescence of single hull was 2015. Um, for the US, it was 2010. And I would say there wasn't a single hull afloat after 2007. And the thing that changed it was that the oil majors just said, do you know what? We're not ha- having them anymore. And within a year, it was pretty much done. So the point is, 2020 is gonna happen, yes. regardless of your views or not.
1: Absolutely. It will come into force. Yes. And regardless of where you think the compliance will be uh, as of 1st of January 2020, um, we are looking at a, a process where you will have to account for yourself in terms of those regulations, the scrubbers or otherwise. Yeah. Are you basically suggesting that there is still a very strong possibility that we will see those investments in scrubbers that have already been made a sunken cost in your words i mean that's you, a risk
0: it's a risk i can't quantify it because i can't quantify it because despite um uh, my enthusiasm uh, it is yet to uh, become a matter of public debate. Um, well, i think you're single-handedly trying to uh, get it up there so <laughs> absolutely absolutely
1: uh, and um but that's, I, I, that's where i'm leading i mean in terms of of your um, you know one man stand against this you're getting a bit of an audience here, certainly within the industry and you know it may be that you can you can you can pull the debate back a little bit but why is it only you and as you said you're not the scientist you know the, the, this has been debated for years within a uh, a, a, a UN agency within the uh, the boardrooms of some of the major players in our industry why is this only now becoming an issue in your mind and why is this
0: uh, has this been left to this point and why you? Well, I think the I think the you know we've always tried to be uh, open and rational because and this is very important. It's very important for understanding the motivation of somebody uh, euphemistically forming an alliance and calling it clean seas. As I said, essentially a greenwashing process for people who've never shown any commitment to the environment. And, and when you look at that kind of grouping... Just to pick you up on that, I think they would argue against that, for the
1: sake of balance here. <laughs> I mean, the Clean Shipping Alliance
0: would certainly uh, disagree with that. We'll at, let's have a on. look at their track record yeah. on an individual basis. What I would say is this, it's not about um, whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, so the, the, situation in, um, the, the situation we're all in is being taken a little bit by surprise on IMO 2020 deadline, um, but everybody then tried to cast around for how you would evaluate the importance or the significance of it. I think that what you can see is that there have been a lot of reports written by um, uh, uh, broker bankers uh, in the equity section, by shipbrokers, and um, they don't write new reports. Essentially, there have been 40, and they've had the same graphs in them. And and they try to find a proxy for where they think the fuel oil spread's going. And it brings me back to why I've always said that this is not a scrubber debate. This is an IMO 2020 debate internally, because what's happening is that people look at it as a shipping issue, but its impact really is in oil production, Um, because for the first time in oil's history, you're now putting a price on sulfur. So uh, on the 1st of January, 2020, oil grades will be repriced according to their sulfur content. So this is quite important. This is going to create um, a a change in balance and surpluses in different sections. As I said to you earlier on, I think that the mistake that was initially made was that people saw it as an MGO versus HFO story, which is why they didn't think it back and through, which is the refiners can reorder to change their product mixes. But most importantly, um, they don't do that until the money's in sight. Uh, Most of them aren't looking to do massive investments, but they are thinking about changing their feedstocks. The reason it's interesting for oil tankers, which it's not interesting for in dry cargo, it's not important in the cruise industry, it's not important in in ferries, is that the one thing that tankers have got is that this is the cargo they carry. And if we're going to see all the Atlantic oils being distributed to new destinations because they're light and sweet, uh, and all of the sours... Um, being distributed differently as well, we could start to see a serious amount of additional tonne miles for shipping, for tanker shipping. As an example, you could see the Mediterranean um, uh, refineries uh, looking for uh, uh, sweet oil on the basis that they can do a straight run and have a residual oil that has no sulfur in it. We've certainly bought from the refinery of Valero at Quebec uh, volumes of bunker fuel four or five years ago that had zero sulfur in them and which were residual oils. Mm. So it's actually just bunker fuel, but with low sulfur in it. So that's one group going that way. But others, uh, like the Gulf Coast refiners, who at the moment don't crack a lot of uh, high sulfur oil, even though they have the equipment to do it, because the cheapest oil they can get is the landlocked oil uh, in, um, in the Permian Basin and, um, and Eagleford. The shale oils, they don't naturally want them, but these are coming with a bottleneck convenience where they get a discount for being uh, for, for having such a big freight cost to move them. So they're able to buy directly being geographically closer and run them not using their sophisticated kit. But if you take residual fuel oil in Rotterdam down to $15 a barrel, which is some people are suggesting, which is the destruction cost equivalent to the energy industry, then what you will end up with is a huge premium to shift that. And we'll see that premium for no-sulfur and discount for high-sulfur creating an ARB between the grades, which will cover the cost of freight to move it to the right place for the right fuel. So I think that that's a really positive positive story for the outlook of the tanker industry. Mm. I think it will also spark, despite high freight rates, it will also spark scrapping, uh, because you'll see coming together at the same time the obligation to put in ballast water treatment, the uh, best benefit for these very old greedy uh, drinking ships is for them to to put on a scrubber. So all of a sudden, you're talking. I'm going in for a fourth special survey, which is going to cost me. Um, you know, it's going to it's going to cost me five million. And now I've got five million of additional costs on a ship that's only worth twenty, and uh, no guarantee that I'll get enough time to get anything more than my money back. So uh, that means there's also a reduction in supply. So I think, as a whole, this process could be very, very good. Couple of years, a good kickstart to the tanker industry, which is in need of a bit more um, cash flow, positive cash flow. Mm
1: we interrupt this podcast for an important announcement if like paddy rogers you're interested in scrubber solutions you may be interested in our new report on how to avoid future fuel risk inside you'll find a unique List consulting scenario modeling on oil price scenarios and how these may affect the take-up of low sulfur fuel solutions including scrubbers lng and low sulfur alternatives The report also answers your questions on availability of low sulfur fuels post-2020 and the legal and insured risk of non-compliance. You can buy the report on our new e-commerce store, the details of which are in the podcast details. Go to LoisList.com. Thanks very much. Back to the podcast.
0: 800,000 barrels of, um, of bunker fuel is probably compliant today depending on how you mix and dilute it and exactly how much it is, you could make uh, quite a lot of compliant fuel quite quickly without too much uh, rearrangement. Um, but the average sulfur content of bunkers is 2.5% at the moment. If you take out you strip out all the volumes that are 1% or less for either blending um, or for straight run um, uh, HFO, what happens to the remaining HFO, HFO pool it becomes stickier and it becomes more sulfurous. So if you're running trials and calibrating your um, uh, scrubbing uh, system to a 2.5% bunker fuel, and it goes to 5%, you'll need double the amount of water. And the double amount of water needs a bigger pump. And you could find yourself with two choices. You either break the rules or you slow down because you can't increase your water flow because you haven't got a big enough pump. So, I mean, it's an important point. The second part that goes with it is that if people are used to the idea like they did in Q2, that okay, I've got a couple of million tons of wood cleaning product and resins. I'm gonna go and dump them in the bunker pool. It's a much smaller pool that you're gonna dump them in and you won't be dumping them in the compliant fuel, which is essentially now a product. The problem that we had is the more that we looked at it, we realised how superficial most commentary around it has been. And yet we're going to sit down and make one of the biggest investment decisions ever. And I do just want to say one last thing that's very important, is that, as I said to you earlier, if the court of public opinion is, you know, we don't really get a stuff, Mm -hmm. if uh, scrubbers look like they work, actually, uh, and in the sense that there's no particulate matter on the surface, nobody's that bothered... um, and it's clear that the fuel oil spread uh, for compliant fuel to heavy fuel oil is $300 a tonne, well, you know, Euronav's reaction to that being rational people is probably, we'll take one of our big storage tankers, fill it up with um, uh, high sulfur fuel oil and then introduce a scrubber program. And that way we can capture the widest spread in January 2020 and burn it off over however long we want to, depending on how many scrubbers we put in. So we do not have to rule out capturing the benefit. Um, so, because that's one of the advantages of being bigger, you will have the ability to do something like this and to watch the market closely. I just really want to re-emphasize that um, uh, we're not, and I can sound a bit like a, a, a demagogue or, you know, uh, but uh, it's not about trying to uh, hold a position of some moral superiority. It's about t- saying to people, don't tell me it's a no-brainer to add $5 million, $6 million per ship um, and therefore, I'm going to get that money back in two to three years' time. You know, um, there's a it's it, it as it is more risky to go with what the scrubber fitters are doing than it is to go without, or potentially it is. We'll know, but nobody knows the answer because we'll find out in 2020. We will wait until
1: the court of public opinion delivers its verdict. But for now, thank you very much, Betty Rogers, for joining the List podcast. <laughs> thank you.